want to talk to you about something I've entitled Complete Consecration. Complete Consecration and how God prepares us when he wants us to move into what he has called us to. We're going to look at this out of the lens of Joshua chapter 5. But I want to quote a few scriptures just to get our minds in the right direction. Joshua chapter 3 verse 5 says, And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, in fact verses 15 and 16, 1 Peter 1 verses 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're talking about complete consecration or total consecration to God. The process that God uses to help his people in being ready for him to use them in a way that brings glory to his name. There are many ways in which God can use us. God can use us as vessels of honor, or he can use us as vessels of dishonor. And the scriptures teach us that for us to be used as vessels of honor, we have to sanctify ourselves or we have to purify ourselves from the things that pollute us so that we can become vessels of honor. In Joshua 3, 5, the scripture I quoted earlier, Joshua speaks to the people of God and tells them, sanctify yourself all separate yourself or make yourselves clean for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The implication therefore is this, that for God to do wonders or the supernatural through his people, he desires his people to be sanctified. Now that word sanctified simply means consecrated or set apart or made holy. And the scripture that we read in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 teaches us that God expects his people to be holy. Maybe you've heard it said, oh, you know, as for me, I can't really be holy. Only God is holy. Well, no, actually, God expects his children to be holy. You see, righteousness is a gift we receive when we get born again. But to be holy is God's expectation on us as we consecrate ourselves to him. God will never ask us to do something that we're not capable of. So when he tells us in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 that he who called you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He wasn't saying something that is unreachable. And he says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. God is a holy God and he expects his children to be holy. And there are different levels of holiness. So when we get born again, we are made holy because of the blood of Jesus. In other words, we are made as God's own special people. But there is a process of sanctification that causes us to be more holy, if you please. Righteousness is imputed. You can never be more righteous. But holiness, there are degrees of holiness. And so as you and I 
are growing in our faith and as we are seeking to know God and know his ways, there is an expectation of God upon us to be holy, which means to be separated from what is unclean or what is sinful or what is worldly and to be dedicated to him as his special people in all purity and right living. All right. So, and then so and then 1 Peter 3:15 talks about sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, make sure that God has his rightful place in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So the implication there is this, that if you don't put God in the right place in your life, you will not be able to give a proper defense for your faith. Now, giving a proper defense for your faith doesn't simply mean you say the right thing to people. It also includes you demonstrate your faith for what it really is. Because our faith is supernatural. And there is an element that we need to show people the supernatural aspect of our faith. All right, so having said that, let's turn to Joshua chapter 6. Sorry, Joshua chapter 5, I beg your pardon. And then we're going to look at, in fact, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's a long read, and I want you to bear with me. And... um, Yeah, we'll read the whole thing, all right? So from verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves, and circumcised the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were males. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he he would not show them the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover until, sorry, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate 
the food of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? So he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. I want you to see five key guidelines that are initiated by God for Israel to be ready to take Jericho. Now, when you look at the whole story about Israel and before, when this thing happens here, they had, first of all, they've gone through the wilderness for 40 years. They'd seen the supernatural power of God. They had come to the promised land before Jordan, and they had defeated two powerful kings of the Amorites. Um, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. They defeated them. Then they came to the Jordan River, and then God supernaturally parted the Jordan River. They crossed over the Jordan River. So now they faced the first city, Jericho. Now, if you and I were in their shoes, we would think that these people were now ready. After God having used them this way, they were now ready to take Jericho. Many times when we as God's people are called by God to do something, because of our past experiences, we presume that we know what we now need to do in order to get the job done. And don't realize that there are key expectations that God has on us for every major step of our lives. Every major step of our lives involves something we need to discover from God in order for God to lead us in what he has called us to. And we're going to learn from this. So, if you and I are going to take any significant territories, we have to be prepared, not just in any way, but the way God calls us to be prepared. And I've seen many times, both in my life and the lives of others, how we presume to know what we should do and end up going around in circles when really all we needed was to discover God's heart and we'll get the breakthrough. So I want you to notice the first thing that is highlighted in verse 1, and that was the condition and position of the enemy. The condition and position of the enemy. It says in verse 1 that the, all the enemy basically, when they realized what had happened to Israel, the fact that they crossed over, they defeated these kings, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Now, I want you to notice that the enemy already knew they were done for. The, or, the enemy already knew that they were in trouble because they had tracked Israel's past or Israel's history. It says their heart melted with fear. They were very afraid and there was no more spirit in them left because of Israel. Nevertheless, 
you will discover that the enemy didn't just roll over and say, since we know we're defeated, come and take Jericho. What is the lesson there? One, for every believer, we must recognize that when God calls us to something, we approach it from a position of victory and not defeat. What God calls us to, he has already empowered us, and the enemy already knows their place, that they are defeated, and really, because of us, there is no spirit left in them. But that does not mean it's going to be easy. That does not mean just because the enemy knows he's defeated, you can just walk in and take your territory and everything's going to be okay. No. Because you will discover in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, that Jericho, this same Jericho, where the enemy knew that they're done for, it says, was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. In other words, this same place became an impregnable, impreg impregnable fortitude that Israel could not take, even though they knew they were defeated. And it was shut to the children of Israel because of them. So what that tells us is God calls us to certain things. The enemy knows it's ours. The enemy is afraid because of us, but yet he will make sure that we are shut out from having what is ours. And unless we discover God's heart, and I say to you too, unless you discover God's heart for this church, even though God has called you to lead this church and God has called you to take this church to the next level, you must, and even though the enemy knows that he is defeated because you are here, and because you are here, the agenda of God must come to pass, he's still going to make sure that it's shut. This whole Chatham Medway area is shut to you because he knows that if it opens to you, he's done for. So, the condition and position of the enemy. 1 John 4, 4 says this. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is, this is our heritage as the people of God. Luke 10, 19 says this. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you or hurt you. This scripture teaches us two things. One, God has given us authority as believers over all the power of the enemy, not over all the authority of the enemy. And what this teaches us is this. We have power or authority, that is the right to exercise power, over areas where the enemy does not have legal right. You see, the Lord did not give us authority over the authority of the enemy. There are two Greek words, exousia and dunamis. He says, I give you exousia over all the dunamis of the enemy and nothing shall by enemies harm you. What he's teaching us is this. Where the enemy has a legal right, you don't have authority. And the only way you, you undo the authority of the enemy is by making sure that the cross is being applied. And this is why you find that a believer can come to a situation where there is a demon and you say, come out, and it's not coming out. Why? Because that demon has a legal right to be there because of maybe sin 
that is taking place in that person's life or something else that has been going on. So you can scream all you like, but it won't go. But the minute the cross is applied to that situation, the legal right is no longer there. He no longer has authority. And even though he might be the most powerful demon, all you have to do is say, go. Because you have authority. You see, in the same way, in this area, the enemy has certain legal rights. So to unhinge it, you need to apply the cross in certain contexts. This is where praying comes in. This is where fasting comes in. This is where love comes in. This is where humility comes in. And this is where consecration comes in. Second point. The need to remove worldliness or worldly influences from us if we are to take what God has ordained for us. You see, there are certain worldly influences in our lives that negate us from receiving what is ours. So you discover from verses 2 to 9, this whole issue about circumcision, right? Now, circumcision speaks of consecration. But let me put it like this. It speaks of painful consecration. You see, there are different types of consecration. We can consecrate ourselves. That is, we're giving ourselves to God and we're taking, we're, we're, we're removing ourselves from worldly influences and giving ourselves to God. And we can do it in different ways. Some of it is comfortable and some of it is painful. And when it comes to entering into the next major level of God's dealings in our lives, it comes with painful consecration. It means you lose something. It means something is going to hurt. There's going to be a mark in your life because of your commitment to God that then qualifies you to enter into what's yours. Oftentimes, we, we confuse grace with sacrifice. We think that sacrifice earns grace. No. Grace empowers us to sacrifice. Sacrifice can never earn grace. But it is grace that empowers us to go that extra mile that we wouldn't naturally go. So God supplies us with the grace in order for us to consecrate ourselves painfully to him. <laughs> but here's what people say. Oh, if I, I, I need the grace. As if God is holding it like some, you know, stingy father. I need the grace. You know, and so he's holding it back and he's, he's not letting it go. No, no. The grace is supplied anytime you need it. Anytime you want it, anytime you ask for it, God is a generous God. He says, let us approach the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So anytime you need mercy or grace, anytime for anything, grace will be supplied. Beloved, it is whether we are willing to receive that grace and use it. So the need for painful consecration. This is what circumcision speaks of. It speaks of worldliness. And worldliness 
has to do with what owns our hearts or what has our hearts. What has our hearts. And the scriptures teach us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, what worldliness involves. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what worldliness involves. And anything that has to do with these three forces will cause a dullness in us that hinders us from entering into what is ours. Third point I want you to notice is in verse 10. The need to affirm God's covenant in our lives. This is where they celebrated Passover. It says the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Now, some of you may I remember, recall at the watch night service, I shared about the fact that this was a year of discipleship for us. And one of the things that I mentioned briefly but want to highlight throughout the year for our churches is the need to break bread regularly or communion as we is commonly referred to. See, in the Old Testament, Passover was dear breaking of bread. Our Lord Jesus, before he was crucified, the night he was betrayed, instituted the new ordinance or the new covenant through communion. He demonstrated it. That is the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. And you may think that, oh, what does this have to do with taking new territories? Well, in the context of the children of Israel, they celebrated Passover because in doing so, they were affirming the covenant that God had made between them and positioning themselves after they had been circumcised to be empowered to take Jericho. In the same way, we need to understand that when we celebrate communion, there are several things that is happening. And this is, and I think this is one of the best and easiest forms of consecration that releases tremendous grace that is often neglected. I said to Aish last night that as a family, we need to start breaking bread. We need to start doing this because it's such a powerful, powerful tool in our hands if we use it properly. Now, why is this important? Because, you see, we need, when we, when we celebrate communion, there are several things that is taking place. One, we align ourselves with the will of God, or like I put it, we press the reset button in our lives. So whatever's been going on, whatever's been going wrong, whatever we've done, when we take communion, we press the reset button in our lives and align ourselves with the will of God. But the Lord, the scriptures teach in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 that when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, what does that mean to proclaim the Lord's death? You see, when you declare something, you reveal it. You reveal it for what it is. And when we proclaim the Lord's death by taking bread and wine, we are enforcing the power that is in the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. There are supernatural properties, and I'll prove it to you in the scripture. You will discover something that uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, and I think it's verse um, 30, that he tells us that for this reason, many of you are weak, sick, and sleep. The reason was this, that when they were taking communion, they were not approaching it properly. They were doing it lackadaisically. They had the wrong heart to it. 
And so the antithesis of it, the reverse, the opposite of it, of what was supposed to happen, was happening. And that was, they were becoming weak spiritually. They were becoming weak or sick physically. And they, some of them were experiencing premature death because of how they approached the communion table. Which means that when you approach it in its correct manner, there are three things that are being released. One, spiritual strength. Secondly, divine health and supernatural healing. And thirdly, the Zoe life of God being infused into you. So what that does is it again positions you to walk in the grace that God has for your life. In whether it's taking a territory or whether it's walking in obedience or whether it's walking in humility before him. So the need to affirm the covenant. Number four. The fourth thing that we need to observe in these lessons is the cessation of manner. The fact that the manner stopped flowing. The manner stopped flowing. This is in verses 11 and 12. They ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, and, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Now, the manna was this supernatural food that God was supplying to the children of Israel after they let, left Egypt for almost 40 years. Every day, food that angels ate, the scripture calls it angels food, was coming down and they were eating it for 40 years. Yes. So a whole generation grew up. All they knew was being fed by God supernaturally. Now they have their position to take their new territory. So you would think that if they needed the manna, it was then. Because they didn't have time to be cooking, if you please. They didn't have time to be worrying about how they were going to eat. And yet the manna ceased. So what does this speak of? It speaks of maturity. It speaks of the fact that God expected them to do for themselves what they were supposed to do for themselves. You see, beloved, you cannot expect to take the territories God has for you if you expect God to do for you what you're supposed to do for yourself. You see, like as a church, we say, oh, God, bring the people, bring the people, bring the people. How? How? How is God going to bring the people? What You think an angel is going to appear to them like he did Cornelius and say to them, go to that church. No, it's not going to be like that most of the time. You get the rare one in a trillion moment that may happen. And even before that happens, somebody has to be praying. Somebody has to be fasting. Somebody has to be doing something. And if I'll say this to you, you two, because you're leading this church, Mickey and Mecca. There are certain things that until you do it, this church will not grow. Now, I'm sorry, that's a bit of a bummer. You know, I wish, I wish I could say to you, it doesn't matter what you do, the church will grow. No, it's not true. Your praying, your fasting, and your teaching of the word will cause the church to 
grow or not grow. So far, you've done very well. Don't, don't look at this because I'm coming. Probably that's why nobody turned up. That's how it normally is, you know. <laughs> but, but I'm telling you, that's how it normally is. You know, as in, you know, I'm coming. So not that they knew I'm coming, but just in the spirit, you know. But don't worry. I need to fast and pray more. That's, that's what it normally is, you know. But, but on a serious note, there are certain things God would expect you to do. And I wish it wasn't like that. I mean, really, I do. I wish as a pastor it wasn't like that. That all you have to do is say, I'm sorry, God. And then, whim, like Cinderella's um, fairy godmother, the wand is spun and silver slippers come on and the, the whole thing happens. But it's not like that in the kingdom of God. There are certain things God expects his children to do before he will give them what's theirs. It can be, whether it's with our marriage, whether it's with our finance, whether it's with our health, whether it's in um, how we move our ministry forward, whether in whatever sphere of influence he's called us to, until we are willing to do what he expects us to do, there is no way we're going to be positioned to receive what is ours. The manna ceased the day they were ready to go and take the territory that was theirs. Beloved, they could no longer depend on God for the miraculous supply of manna. And I have observed something in the life of many believers, and it is this. When they are younger, they experience a level of liberty and freedom in spiritual things and in prayer because they are young. But as they, get, as they start to grow older in the faith, they begin to experience a certain brick wall. I don't feel God like I used to. My prayer life is not like it used to. You know, why isn't it the same way like it used to? Because you're growing up. You see, sometimes you look at the older ones and say, ah, you see, you know, they don't go prayer meetings. You, you, you keep growing. Let's see how, how, how you do. You know, sometimes you look at the older ones, ah, come on, they don't worship like I do. Okay, you're coming. Don't worry. We'll see, we'll see what happens with you when you get there. Beloved, as you grow older in the Lord, he expects you to do for yourself only what you can do. So when you're younger and all you did was raise your hands and tears fell and you just got the song, even though the song was rubbish, you just was touched. And you, when you're older, the, the angels could be singing. And until you break through your flesh, you won't feel anything. That's how it is. And number five, the fifth area to observe in taking new territories is the encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, verses 13 to 15. Now, he says that it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, there are many things we could say about this encounter. But simply put, this commander of the Lord's army represented God. Some would say, 
this was Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Personally, that's not my view, but many great theologians view it to be so. Nevertheless, he represents God. He represents God. And uh, one of the things that's important that in taking new territories that God has called us to, we need to have some kind of encounter with God. We need some kind of encounter. I'm not saying you're going to have a, a visitation of a high archangel like this one. That's what I believe this guy was. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that you will have something of the signature of God's presence upon your life that shows you have encountered God. Because the revelation of God that you are carrying will determine your expectation from God concerning the area that you want to take territories in. The revelation of God you are carrying will determine what you expect God to do with you and through you. And in the context of a new territory, you need to see God as a warring God, a warrior God. His sword is drawn out, ready for battle. You see, the Lord Jesus is not a baby. I mean, that picture that we have of Christmas is a very bad picture. He was once a baby. He's never a baby ever again. Yes, just, just, just for the... By the by, <laughs> he is a righteous judge. He is a he's the king of kings. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a warring God. He's a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. That's what the scripture says. He's no longer a baby. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this encounter. The first thing is this, that God does not take sides when he comes into a context. He comes to take over. He does not come to take sides. God is not interested in who is wrong or who is right. He's interested in who is doing my will. And I've said this many times, and you heard me say this in one of the Elders and Ministers Summit. God will send people to a church that doctrinally is weak, that even may have issues, if he knows that church is going to care for the people. More than a church that's got all his doctrine in place, has got his strategy in place, but is so busy that he hasn't got time to care for the weak. Yeah. Second thing I want you to notice is this, that Joshua asks the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, I'm for neither of you. See, the Lord does not look at your enemy. He looks at his mandate. He looks at his mandate. Because later on you discover this. When they went to take the city of Ai, they went with a smaller army because it was a very small city and God made sure that Ai beat them. Why? Because Israel had sinned. They were no longer in alignment with his will. So you see that God wasn't on Israel's side like most people think. Oh, God is on the side of the Jews. God is on the side of his word. 
Now, thank God for the Jews. We, we don't want to undermine the Jewish race. That's not what we're talking about. Thank God for them. Thank God for the covenant through Abraham. And we pray for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for the Israel. We want Israel, um, the natural branches, to come in. Of course, we honor them as that. But God is not on the side of anybody. He's on the side of his word and his will. The, th the th third thing or the fourth thing that I want you to notice is this. The Lord will only be willing to take over when you are ready to let him. He said to Joshua, when Joshua said, what does my Lord want of his servant? He said, take your shoes off. Shoe. In fact, he said, take your shoe off, your sandal off your foot. He didn't say off your feet. There was a reason. He didn't say take your shoes off like we think God wanted him to take his, both his shoes. No. It was a very specific instruction. Take the sandal off your feet. Off. Is that what he says? Take your sandal off your foot. Off your foot. Singular. Why? Because it was something that God was referring to that he had instituted for Israel. Later on he had instituted. And you find this in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And that was this, that when the kinsman of Boaz took off his shoe and gave it to Boaz, he yielded his right to marry Ruth. And so when the um, captain of the Lord's army was asking him to take his sandal off his foot, what he was saying to Joshua is, yield your right to lead the army to me. Yield it to me. You see, in consecrating ourselves, one of the things we must be willing to do is we must be willing for God to be the boss, to be the Lord of every area, of, of the, especially in the area that we are bringing to him. You see, let's be honest. I'm going to say something that's very controversial. Let's be honest. God is not the Lord of every area of our life. He's not. If he was, we won't have a problem. He's the Lord of the areas we've allowed him. Some have allowed more and some have allowed less. Let's just be honest. We sing these lovely, nice, silly songs. I'm yours, everything I have. But it's not true. I'm yours as long as I'm okay with it. Everything I have that I'm willing to let go of, everything I'm not that I don't want, and everything you have that I want. <laughs> I'm yours, Lord. Everything I have. <laughs> it's not true. I wish it was. And I'm praying it would be true for me. But let's be honest. So when we're talking about yielding, we're talking about yielding the area specific to the territory that we require. Yeah. So in the context of the church, you have to be willing to yield the leadership of the church to him. And it's not easy sometimes. Because sometimes you think you just know. I mean, I've been doing this for how long? You just think you know, and you don't. You don't. Yeah. So, the other thing I want you to notice is when Joshua asks, what does my Lord require of servant? Is this. God does not take instructions from us. We take instructions from him about what he wants to say. And often, we bring our shopping list to God. 
as if he's our slave, our errand boy, and expect him to do for us what we are believing for. I have news for you. In taking new territories, God does not take instructions from us about what we want to see, but he expects us to take instructions from him about what he has to say. So in saying that, we're not going to pray. Thank you.